Hey everybody, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome to another edition of ODYR Radio. And as usual, I have Paul Farkas standing by. Hi everyone. And today's show is brought to you by Marco, as the previous two shows have been. And the reason that they're brought to you by Marco is because today we're going to talk about all, all about technology. And this is obviously a Marco strength. They do it very, very well. And we can't say enough about the, the Marco company. So when you go to the next show, be sure to go to the Marco booth and look at all the equipment that we're discussing. So, Paul, today we are going to be speaking once again with, with Dr. John Warren of Racine, Wisconsin. And all, all the folks out there may know uh, John is in private practice, but the thing that you probably know him best for is Revolution EHR. He's one of the co-founders of that particular piece of software, uh, which you may actually be using to drive your practice right now. So John is a technology maven. He knows just about everything in terms of eye care technology, and we're really glad to have him here today. So, John, thanks for being here. And oh, you're welcome. Although you make me nervous, you make me sound a little smarter than I am. So. <laughs> Big buildup. And, and the title today is uh, Pupil Dependent Refraction. Aha. Who would have thought? So, yes, yeah, so we're going to talk all about this, and I, and I think that we, we touched on this probably a little bit in the last talk all about wavefront technology, but let's talk a little bit more today about pupil dependent refraction. So... So, John, what do you mean when you say pupil-dependent refraction? Well, I'm, I'm stealing a few lines from my friend Luke Tania. Um, you know, I've, I've seen Lou speak a few times, and, and he's done some work with Marco. We've, we've shared some time talking about things. And I was in a meeting one time, and he said something, you know, I think it was, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's the pupil controls everything. And it's not just that it controls how much raw light gets into the eye, but it really controls the refractive power of the eye to a really, really large degree. Um, as we talked in the, the other two um, the other two podcasts we've done, the uh, the pupil, you know, when when we take a look at the refractive power of the eye, and not only just not only sphere but also cylinder and cylinder axis, as the pupil size changes, those values can change dramatically in some patients. Um, when you use aberrometry on a day to, on a day in a day out basis, you start to realize just how variable this is between patients and how different all of your minus twos or minus fours or plus fives might be. Um, when I came out of school, we thought, you know, everybody was a plus two was pretty much just the same plus two and everybody's a minus three was about the same minus three. But then we had patients that would out, we'd, we'd finish a refraction and, and their K values were normal and everything looked clear as far as the media goes and the macula was nice and shiny with a nice foveal reflex. And they still saw t- kind of t- what I call 2020 eh, meaning they, they could read the 2020 line, but it wasn't real clear. And we give them a little more minus and maybe it was better, but now it looks smaller, but it just wasn't quite right. And, you know, we could never quite figure out what was going on with these patients. Well, now with aberrometry, we can see that a lot of these patients either develop some cylinder in the periphery of their, of their pupil or have the sphere power change uh, quite a bit. Um, it's not unusual for me to see patients that when I do aberrometry on them that are a minus two in the center, a minus two and a quarter or two, 250 at the, the three millimeter zone, and might be up to a minus four at the the, uh, the five millimeter zone. So, a pretty big shift in refraction as we move across that pupil. So, that patient on a bright sunny day like I have today might just be a minus two. That'd be the refraction. Um, but then the same evening, once the sun goes down, now they're they'd, they'd like a minus two fifty. Um, it's kind of hard. You know, we have lenses that change optical density, but not that change optical power yet based on sunlight. Um, so, so it helps, you know, it explains some of the issues that, that many of these patients have been having for, for a lot of time. So, so what happens in a normal refraction when a patient comes in, uh, dilation is part of the exam procedure. At what point do you uh, start the, the pupil dilation process? You know, 
there's there's two two parts to that that answer. One is I, I haven't I, I haven't refracted with with the lights off now for about the last 12 years. Um, you know, the biggest reason that that we learned to refract with the lights off, Paul, when we were in school, was that you know before halogen projectors to get a, a chart that was bright enough on the wall for the patient to see, you had to turn the lights out. And what that does is it makes that pupil big uh, in a patient who's not been dilated. It makes that pupil big, and it actually uh, causes patients to to exhibit a little bit more nearsightedness than usual. I use what I call pre-dilation, meaning the patient dilation starts while they're being worked up by the by the uh, technician. Uh, and I usually the the OPD or the aberrometry values are gathered about two to three minutes after the drops go in. So we're usually working on a normal size pupil. You know, we're not looking at a pharmacologically dilated pupil. But by the time the refraction starts, they may be slightly more dilated than that. Um, but um, it, the, the pupil size does matter, and that's why having aberrometry values really does help. If it's a, a patient that has a significant boost in nearsightedness, they might, even with the lights on, they may refract a little bit more minus than, than they would normally. So I can use that, that information derived or given to me by the aberrometer to decide just what Rx to use. It's not always just what shows up in the foreopter at the end of the refraction. I may adjust the, the minus power up or down based on what I see in aberrometry. Um, I've mentioned patients that, that go from, you know, that become more nearsighted or less hyperopic um, uh, as, the, as you go further out in the pupil, but there are people that are the reverse. There are some where there's no change that are minus two all the way, all the way out, and there are others that go from plus three to, you know, plus three to plus 350 as you move to the outside. Uh, they're definitely outliers, but they certainly do exist. So without, you know, if you don't pay attention to pupil size and its impact on refraction, it doesn't make you a bad doctor but it really limits your ability to know what prescription the patient is going to probably function best under under most circumstances or if there's going to be a specific need prescription uh, that the patient will have based on um, based on pupil size and its, its effect on the refraction. Right. So does this pupil size uh, impact your, your prescribing of specs? You know, it does. Um, it, 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 it affects it in a couple ways. Um, one is patients that, that do have a significant night vision shift. Um, once I finish the, the, the extraction process, because I've, I have loaded the lensometry the, and then the subjective that we've come up with, and then also their nighttime either auto-refraction or I can actually dim the lights and refract them again and keep that data in a separate, a separate receptacle so, so I have it available to me. Um, those patients, um, I can actually demonstrate the different, different vision to them. So patient that, that doesn't have much night vision shift but has had a, a change in refraction, I can demonstrate their, you know, their old prescription versus new prescription very quickly by showing them you know, the, the difference between the two. But I can also then show them the, the night vision prescription after dimming the lights compared to the day vision prescription, what I call day vision, a subjective, uh, that's been gathered with the lights on. So I'm able to demonstrate to them the difference. And, and you know, in probably 30% of my patients, there's a moderate change in, in spherical power and in some of those cases, cylinder power also, um, from the center to the outside of the pupil, of those 30%, probably 30% of those will notice a difference. Where I'll show them the difference and they go, huh, that is clearer. And some of them will say, eh, it's not that much different. Um, so based on the response I get on that, it's just modify objective prescription and give them one RX to wear for everything. Miss them a little bit under daylight conditions. Um, if they're 25, they probably aren't going to mind it, mind an extra quarter diopter. But if they're 55, they will not like it. Um, so, uh, people with bigger refractive shifts or people that are presbyopic with a decent shift, I'm more likely to recommend a second 
uh, a second prescription. Um, a couple times, if they wear contacts, I've recommended glasses for over the top that are like minus 50 or minus 75. Um, and that really just kind of cleans things up for them in the low light situations. And for contact lens prescribing, it makes a large difference. Um, right. I've been a fan of I've been a fan of aspheric soft lenses as long as they've been out. I sort of fit in the Pure Visions. I think it was in 1999 uh, when those first came out as an the first aspheric lens mass produced uh, that was that was around. And most patients either love the optics or they're neutral about it. But I would have patients from time to time that would say, you know, I don't like these. I don't the vision's grainy. I don't see real well. Well, if I, if I went back and looked at all the aberrometry on those patients that didn't like that lens as far as the optics go, I bet you 80% of them actually had a, a reverse shift, meaning they got less nearsighted in the periphery. So I was actually inducing <clears throat> more aspherosity in them instead of canceling it out with the lens, I was making it worse. Um, so in those patients, it makes a difference. Um, so that was going to – I think you've answered my question. So, so basically, you, when you make a contact lens selection – it is based on pupil size as well. Yeah, well, correct? not so much pu- not so much pupil size, Paul. It's more 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 change in, in prescription from center to the periphery. Um, I will do some pupil size things if it's a gas perm lens where I can customize the optical zone. Seeing a larger pupil, I'll make the pupil larger so that it's always in the optical zone of the lens and not in the carrier portion of the gas perm. Um, but a patient that exhibits no no aspherosity or a negative aspherosity, I will not put them in an aspheric soft contact lens. The other thing I'll, I'll do based on pupil size is not, and not so much RX change though, is, is uh, uh, multi, or simultaneous view bifocal contact lenses. People with really large pupils sometimes don't do so well with those lenses that are, that are center distance with the, the uh, near, or the center, center near. Uh, sometimes they do better in a center, a center distance lens with a large pupil because they can get into those multiple zones for the intermediate and, and distance. So knowing the pupil size in daylight and nighttime will sometimes drive my choice of lens. Um, and same thing for the gas perms. I, do, I use a custom, custom aspheric gas perm uh, bifocal. And, you know, people that have large daytime pupils especially, I may modify the, op, the, the size of the distance or near zone specifically driven by their pupil. So knowing that not only the size of the pupil makes a difference, but also the, the pupil in that person, the, the pupil's impact on their vision so, uh, and on their prescription. So, John, you just touched on an interesting point. You know, when, when we do these interviews, we talk to people about contact lenses, and typically people have a go-to lens that they use or that they fall mm-hmm. in love with. It sounds like you have more than one go-to lens that you use, which is a little bit different from most people. I do. I, I kind of have a go-to aspheric and a go-to non-aspheric. Um, they're very different lenses. Um, it's not even the same com- same contact lens company or family of lenses. Um, but there are patients that, that are, even if they love the way the aspheric lens fits, they're going to hate the optics. And there are others that might not like to fit it, the feel of the aspheric lens as much, but they're going to love the optics. So, um, you know, within the daily disposable lenses, I have two favorites. And, and within the, the the uh, longer replacement period lenses, I have two favorites. And based on, on the actual uh, aberrometry that I get the results of the extraction, that will drive what lens I go to, actually. Right. So without the aberrometer, you would have had no idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, I guess in some cases, for some people, maybe ignorance is bliss. Um, but I, you know, I, I like to be able to, to uh, know what's going on with that patient's refraction and then make, make you know, well-guided decisions and well-guided recommendations. Um, patients appreciate it too. You know, I'll show them with, by, because I use this viewer software in the exam lanes where I can pull up all this information. I'll actually show the patient 
that's a new a new or a new contact lens patient or a refit patient I might say, you know, I would really like to use lens X on you, but we're not going to because of the way this looks. Um, and they, they appreciate that. It actually, you know, they're like, wow, I've, I've never seen this. Or my other eye doctor didn't, sure, sure didn't do this. And that's my aha moment. I'm like, yeah, go tell all your friends about it too. Um, so it's, you know, it does, it does drive not just spectacle prescribing, but it also drives contact lens work. Um, right, right. And John, actually, we have a, it's not, I'm not going to say from a cynical perspective, but a lot of people have said, you know, they have patients coming in, they saw an ad on TV for a particular contact lens. And this might just be another point of data that you can use to say that lens probably isn't the one for you. Right. Or, or to reinforce, boy, that would be a great choice. You right. know, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're right. It, it, it does. It helps. You know, and it helps drive uh, drive recommendations. And and I think if there is any skepticism on the patient's part, um, having something you know numerical and graphic and scientific to show them really makes it. it I don't like to say easier sell, but an easier explanation. Right. So, you know, speaking of scientific, uh, I'm going to ask you a very controversial question. Uh, there is uh, a lot of data that you, you're using, and uh, it, it takes a certain amount of expertise. Uh, how does this fit in for, to those practices where they would like the assistant to do the refraction? You know, it, it helps in a couple ways. Uh, I, I don't think it has to be a negative at all. Um, number one is because the aberrometer, if the patient has a fairly clean optical system, meaning not normal root mean square values and not a lot of prescription change from center to periphery, it sends to the auto, the auto refraction that it sends over to the refracting uh, system is, is what's called a wavefront optimized auto refraction. And it nine times out of 10 is plus or minus a quarter sphere change only from where the patient's going to be, what the patient's going to end up wearing. Um, so it, it speeds up and eases the refraction greatly. And if a technician is well enough trained to do um, a, a refraction and use a refraction system, they should also be able to be trained to, to recognize these things. And whether, whether the technician, the non-doctor refractionist, spends the time to discuss this with the patient or not, it's going to really depend on, on the, the comfort level of, of that refractionist. But if nothing else, they can say, hey, doc, you know, this patient's got, you know, make sure you notice the night vision shift of this patient and, and talk to them about it. They told me their night vision's bad. Um, so I think, if anything, it's, it's, it's a positive. Um, I, don't, I don't delegate my refractions just because I don't have the demand for the time. It wouldn't free me up to do more things to delegate the refraction. But um, I think it, with a, a delegated refraction, I think, you know, actually having this data is, is going to make it a better delegated refraction and let the refractions do a better job. Sure. Right. So we, we're at the point now that uh, <laughs> we're coming to the end. Wow. So, so, so John, so then I guess, if, do you have any final thoughts about this? You know, just wrapping up all, all three of the shows that we've done, actually, all about efficiency and technology uh, in your practice. Do you have any sort of final thoughts or, or words of advice for folks out there who are listening to this? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things we've, we've been, I think, spoiled with in primary eye care over the last decade and a half or so is as most technologies have come out, there's been a direct CPT code that we say, this is how I I, I perform the service on my patient. I'm going to collect this much money for it, and I can figure out what the ROI is, you know, the return on the investment fairly quickly. You know, I need to do 2,000 of these, and I'll break even, and I do 500 of them a year, so in four years I'll win enough money, um, whatever it is. And with, with X-Fraction, there's really a, there's a CPT code called 92015, which you've already been billing for. So we're not going to add a specific procedure code to the practice because of this. 
but it certainly opens opens my eyes as a as the the doctor and it opens the patient's eyes as to what their conditions are so there's there's definitely uh you know that gee whiz or holy cow uh pa- component to the patient experience where it makes for a better patient experience makes them more i think makes them more likely to refer friends and family members you know i think it helps grow your practice that way um, we also have um, the ability uh, to do things more efficiently. Um, I'm able to, you know, run six patients per hour uh, for about three hours. To, uh, my, my one technician and I, working out of two rooms, can stay caught up just fine that way, still with enough time to discuss things with patients at the end of the encounter. Um, so it can, you know, these, these technologies can buy you time, which you can either choose to see more patients per day, per week, or per month, or you can see instead of five days of patient time, you can do it in four days and put that, four, that fifth day to work however you want. Um, or you can just have more time with each patient, which is really the approach I've taken um, to be able to spend more time with my patients, whether it's discussing their optical needs or why their cataracts should or shouldn't be operated on or what drusen mean, um, you know, those sort of things. Or even, you know, boy, can you believe they lost that football game last night? Um, whatever it is that, that causes you to provide better care and enjoy your, enjoy your practice more. So the efficiency gains are certainly there, and, and, and those you can put pen and pencil to. Um, but for me, the biggest ROI is when I enjoy it, I do more. I know more about my patient's visual system. I Very rarely do I scratch my head and say, boy, why aren't they seeing as well as they should? You know, why is it a 20-25 eye with a normal clean macula and a normal, a normal optic nerve? You know, I don't have to guess about why it is the patient's not seeing well. Um, and even if, if it's not something I can intervene with that day or that month, uh, maybe there's a surgical referral that I'll make for a cataract a little earlier and get the patient seeing better for more of their life. Um, or just, but just frankly, knowing what's going on and why the patient's not seeing well. Um, I, I monitor several, several different email lists and, and other forums, and invariably someone will say, gee, I can't figure out why this patient can't see. And the first thing I want to say is, you know, well, what's the aberrometry like? Um, and while there is a cost to these technologies, there certainly is a, uh, a recoupment, whether it's in, in time or quality of practice uh, or, or opt- increase optical sales, too, by understanding better what's going on, uh, having lower remake rates and being able to make recommendations to patients. So, you know, while we as business people have to look at reimbursements and expenses, um, I think it's important to also look at the, the soft return on investment that we get. And, and whether you're looking at a, an aberrometer and a refraction system or you're looking at an OCT or you're looking at a fundus camera, I always try to remember that most of these technologies are not investments. They're mostly costs of doing business because within five years of buying the newest, latest, greatest uh, OCT or cam, fundus camera, you name it, there's going to be a newer, better version either from that manufacturer or from a competitor. It's going to make you go, gee, I'm really not state-of-the-art anymore. This one has better resolution or runs faster or does more things. So while I like to try to buy these things and use them for a long time, um, you know, a lot of times if it's something that has, a, has, a lot, has at least one, one microprocessor in it, you're probably going to be looking at replacing it. And I try to look at these more as a cost of doing business uh, than I do as an investment that I'm going to, you know, it's not like your chair and stand that you, that you buy in 1997 and still use in 2013. So, you know, uh, try to try to go into these things with eyes open, but try to listen well and understand the capabilities of the technology you're looking at, um, and try to remember that it's much more fun to do new things and do the same thing over and over again. Absolutely, and and the important part is that you can try before you buy, 
uh, by going to any meeting and go to the Marco booth. That's right. We're deep into show season right now, right? It's just starting because we're in the, we're broadcasting this in the fall. So everyone out there, you know, Marco will have big displays open and they, they love for you to stop by and actually try the technology out. Well, one of the neat things about especially the aberrometry is that it's there's a lot of graphical nature to the display. And so not that it just looks pretty, but it's it's really easy at a, at a, a trade show view to get a good glimpse of what's going on. Um, get a good idea of what you're being shown, you know, what the device is showing you on yourself or your spouse or your, your business partner or the sales, or sales rep that's having the 28th aberrometry done on them in the morning. Um, it actually is a pretty easy technology to grasp at least the, the basics of what's being, what it's delivering to you. Right. And very importantly, as we've discussed before, the folks at Marco, we know, won't just, you know, throw a piece of equipment at you and say goodbye. You can actually talk to the reps about how it's going to fit into your workflow, which is the most critical part of buying a new device. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I think they, they shine at is, is their reps actually, you know, can come in and take a look at your physical layout and say, you know, we, we want to do this device, but we don't want to do this companion device. We want to do something else because of, you know, the, where the walls are or, you know, how the cabling is or whatever it might be. Their, their reps are, ex, are actually trained in helping you work on your workflow to streamline things and, and make you as efficient as possible. Right. Well, John, thanks so much for the series. It's been a lot of fun. And I know we've got a lot of listeners out there who might want to follow up with you. Maybe we can continue the conversation on ODWire. Yes, sure. Thanks, thanks so much, John. You're welcome.